Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Ken, we were talking the other day about how when one door closes, another door opens, and we might lose a Michael Avenatti, but we gain a Sam Bankman-Fried. And Sam Bankman-Fried continues to be the gift that keeps on giving, not to uh, FTX customers, uh, but to us. And so Sam Bankman-Fried, who is out on bail and who I I think you would say is somewhat fortunate in his bail terms, uh, that he gets to live in his parents' home in Palo Alto, California, and not in, you know, the the detention center near the federal court in Manhattan. Sam Bankman-Fried has, uh, the prosecutors in his case have asked the court to ask him to stop doing something. They would like him to stop contacting current or former employees of FTX. Is that a normal thing for prosecutors to ask for in a case like this? Well, it's it's a normal thing for them to ask for, but not quite this politely. Uh, And it's often accompanied (laughs) by people with handcuffs and um, ill-fitting raid jackets. So our, our, our friend SBF, uh, and I just have to say this fucking kid. Um, he's 30. Okay, but he's a man child. He's young for an ex-billionaire. But, you know, like people of the age of 30 routinely go through the criminal justice system. I mean, you know, I like I, I was a correspondent for the New York Times when I was 30. People can, you know, you, you're not a child when you're 30. You, you're expected to, for example, abide by the terms of your release on bail uh, when you were accused of a multi-billion dollar fraud when you're 30. It's but not- Josh, you were probably were an adult when you were 15. This guy uh, at 30 <laughs> is manifestly not an adult by any uh, measures that we we would normally say. In terms of age, yes. In terms of how much money he's had recently, yes. But in terms of his grasp of the world around him and his role in it and responsibility, he is uh, basically, to use a, a throwback reference, he's basically Cato Kalin uh, if you gave him a billion dollars and then took it away. So, <laughs> but let's leave that aside. SBF, okay. what did we say of his age? sent uh, an email to the general counsel at FTX, actually a signal, not an email, signal an app being known for deleting automatically after a certain amount of time, in which he said- It's how you contact your drug dealer. Yes, or occasionally your lawyer, fair disclosure. Um, (laughs) And he said, I would really love to reconnect and see if there's a way for us to have a constructive relationship. Use each other as resources when possible, or at least vet things with each other. So in context, the prosecutors not unreasonably thought that was a solicitation to get their stories straight and to collaborate on uh, false statements to the government and that type of thing. So they Mm -hmm. sent a letter to the judge asking what the judge would maybe consider if he's not too busy putting terms in this bond that says, stop doing that, you dumb shit. Um, And... (laughs) SBF's lawyers reacted with, you know, fake outrage. How dare you? He's actually talking about the bankruptcy case. There's so many FTX employees, he can't be expected not to contact any of them. Why don't you come up with a list of specific important witnesses he shouldn't contact, which also then, of course, gives the defense a list of the witnesses the government thinks are most important. So I actually am a little surprised they didn't respond to this by asking to yank the bail. So just asking the judge to amend the terms of the bail to tell him not to do this is a a relatively moderate approach to this. And it may be they're deliberately underplaying it a little bit, letting the judge get mad instead of them getting super mad. But yeah, someone who got as good of a deal 
as this guy did should not be doing this type of thing. This is a way to lose uh, your great bail and to be residing instead of your parents' multi-multi-million-dollar Palo Alto home uh, in a somewhat less pleasant accommodation uh, in New York. So when we did the episode about how to be a good client, we talked some about situations where your business interests may diverge from your legal interests, and particularly situations where you have an ongoing need to conduct business with people who could be co-defendants or witnesses or otherwise caught up in your legal trouble. And there's this wrinkle here where SBF has no such imperative because he is no longer in business, but he doesn't seem to fully understand that. He has this apparent delusion that he can contest the bankruptcy case around FTX and that the FTX entities are really solvent if only he's given the opportunity to make everybody whole. And he seems to, he at least seems to be acting like he believes that he has some chance of someday coming back into control of the FTX entity and being a person who runs a crypto exchange again. And if he believes that, then he feels that he has certain business imperatives to try to do that, which include trying to interfere in the bankruptcy case, which obviously is separate from his his criminal case. And so if he really were in that situation, then I guess he would need to try to come up with these sorts of delineations and try to get permission from the government about who he could talk to to conduct those business imperatives. I mean, it's it's this added layer where it's, you know, either he's delusional or, and and this is something that I sort of feel about Sam Bankman-Fried, he acts like he's guileless and dumb and he doesn't understand what's going on around him and it causes people to cut him slack. And so people look at this and they say, oh, Sam Bankman-Fried, he just has this delusion about he thinks he's going to interfere in the bankruptcy case. That could just be a cover for trying to get his story straight or otherwise interfere in the criminal case, right? Like, I, I feel like people are sort of, I feel like people give him a little bit more credit than than he deserves sometimes about how forthright statements are. Like, if he comes out and says, I'm talking about this because of the bankruptcy case and not the criminal case, people's default is to believe that, even though he's lied over and over again about all sorts of things. I wonder about that. But then also, you know, if he if he really does have that delusion, then I guess he does need to try to do this balancing of his legal interests and his purported business interests. Well, no, he doesn't, because if he can do that through his lawyers, any business contacts, any instructions that have to be given can be given through everybody's lawyers so that they're not usable as direct evidence against him. So there's no plausible argument, uh, even if he did have some sort of ongoing business interest, which he doesn't. But Josh, I don't think we necessarily have to pigeonhole him as either childlike or manipulative. People are weird. It's perfectly possible he's both at the same time. He does seem to have a very elaborate childlike view of the world and what's happening to him that seems to be more extensive and convincing than I, than I think he'd be capable of pulling off as a con. But he also does seem to be attempting, bless his heart, to the best of his ability to be manipulative. So I think it's a combination of both. I mean, he, he pulled off a very extensive and, and sophisticated con for a number of years. I mean, the the whole the company was a Ponzi scheme, and eventually it fell to pieces when crypto prices fell. But we know that Sam Bankman-Fried is capable of an elaborate deception because he conducted one, and then he conducted the ancillary deceptions in which he built himself out as a political and philanthropic visionary leader um, that were in service of his business interests. I mean, I, I, I guess it's a little bit beyond our scope to discuss whether his commitment to effective altruism was genuine or not. But we've definitely seen him spin very complicated 
complicated, very extensive stories for a very long period of time in a way that served his financial and business interests. Yeah, but uh, it just it just didn't work forever. But with all with all respect, that's due to the customers of FTX. The people he scammed were people who believed in magic beans in the first place. And his successful scam still has the childlike quality that many Ponzi's do because it's inevitable it's going to collapse. Ponzi's collapse. That's what they do. And the few Ponzi schemers who are actually smart and not childlike get away in time. They take the money and they run and they wind up hidden someplace. This guy seems truly to believe on some level that he can keep it going. But I, I think we're at, we're asking unanswerable questions about this man. But in my opinion, he seems to have strong elements of both a child and a con. So what's going to happen here? The what what is the judge likely to do in response to this request from the government to stop SBF from running his mouth in yet one additional context? By the way, did you include Signal on the list of of, of forums on which SBF was not supposed to talk? <sighs> God damn it. No, I did not. This is your fault. You didn't you told yes. him not to substack. Yes, that's fair. But you didn't tell him not to signal. That's fair. Honestly, I need some sort of list. <laughs> some sort of comprehensive <laughs> list of all forms of human communication. Yeah. Um, no wicker and no telegram, SBF? No. Uh, no interpretive dance, no Anyway, no semaphore. Anyway, I think the judge will probably just do something fairly brief, setting new terms. I, I, I doubt if the government's not flipping out, the judge is likely not to flip out. But this kind of lays the baseline. So the next time SBF does something, he's in, uh, you know, more trouble. And sooner or later, the government's going to get mad enough to yank him back into jail. Would the government want his bail revoked? Does that make it easier for them to pressure him to plead or do they just want it punitively? Because I, I could imagine certain reasons why it might be a pain for the government to have him behind bars. Well, so here's the thing. Um, when you have his bond yanked, even though, yes, you could put a lot more pressure on him. On the other hand, everything goes slower. Judges understand that it's very hard to work with a client who's in custody, especially in a white collar case with millions of documents. Everything goes more slowly. Even a day in court goes more slowly. A trial is incredibly delayed because you have to, you know, bring the guy in and out in chains outside the presence of the jury. So it, it, it makes everything more difficult. And if they don't think he's someone who's likely to yield to the pressure of being in custody, they may think it's not as valuable as having him out, continuing to incriminate himself relentlessly and uh, specifically, <laughs> you know, go out there articulating the elements to crimes they haven't even thought of yet. So um, <laughs> they may be of a mixed mind on that. It is possible to incriminate yourself from jail. Of course it is. David DePap, the man who attacked Paul Pelosi with a hammer. Um, we've seen the video now of him attacking Paul Pelosi with a hammer. And David DePap apparently called KTVU, which is the Fox affiliate in San Francisco, from jail in San Francisco to make certain statements about what he has done. He apologized uh, for not getting more of the people who he says, he said, he, or let me let me just read some from the transcript of what David DePap said for the television viewers of San Francisco and now the whole country. He said, I have an important message for everyone in America. You're welcome. The people killing liberty have names and addresses. So I got their names and addresses so I could pay them a little visit and have a heart to heart about their behavior. He goes on, I messed up. What I did was really bad. I'm so sorry I didn't get more of them. It's my own fault. I should have come better prepared. So this uh, is effectively a confession, first of all, right? 
Yeah, it's more or less indicating that um, it's more or less indicating that he meant to hurt people and that he had the all the intent they would need for any of the crimes they're charging him with. And then David DePap quite plausibly is insane, um, but not insane in a way that would be likely to get him a not guilty verdict due to reason of insanity, right? Correct. So let, let's let's start with the baseline that insanity defenses in general are very rarely successful. Generally, juries hate them. And people more floridly crazy than this guy get convicted by juries all the time. Um, the insanity plea has been really unpopular in the United States and got much more so after John Hinckley was found um, not guilty by reason of insanity after shooting uh, former President Reagan and, and some of his staff. So he's facing two different types of insanity pleas. In federal court, he has the burden of proving by clear and convincing evidence that as a result of a severe mental disease or defect, he was unable to appreciate the nature and quality or the wrongfulness of his acts. That's the language from the statute. And notice it's his burden to prove it. It's an affirmative defense. So he has to put on the evidence showing that. That was the law that was toughened after the Hinckley case. California's uh, standard is, is a little more loosey-goosey, a little closer to the classic insanity defense uh, that, that derives from England. And it says that uh, he has to prove only by preponderance of the evidence, 51 to 49, uh, that he had a mental disease and defect. And because of it, he was unable of knowing or understanding the nature or quality of the acts or that it was morally or legally wrong. So... Generally, you have to show that you're crazy and the crazy is driving completely what you're doing. It can't be that you're a political fanatic and also crazy. So here, he would have to show that because of mental illness, he was unable to understand that it's legally and morally wrong to try to kill Nancy Pelosi. And that's hard to do, and it's hard to get a jury to follow the law, even when you have evidence that's the case. Well, and also he, while obviously what he did is, you know, e extreme and bizarre and illegal, the list of reasons he articulates for why he doesn't like Nancy Pelosi are quite conventional. It's that, you know, she's a liberal who is undermining his vision of liberty in the country and he doesn't like what she's doing. It's sort of a, a standard set of reasons why someone with conservative politics would not like a liberal politician, which I assume is less useful if you're trying to plead insanity than if he had said, like, Nancy Pelosi is using fluoride in the water to control my mind. It would indicate a, you know, a, a, a bizarre and insane set of, of, of political disagreements rather than a fairly ordinary set of political disagreements to which he has resorted to a violent and illegal act to express and, and further his political views. Well, that's right. And the way he went about it, uh, you know, by night and breaking in a back door and all the other things and some of the things he said suggested he understood that it was illegal. Um, the defense would be he was unable to understand that it was immoral. And some of the more interesting insanity cases out there are the ones where people think that God has uh, demanded that they go do this thing, whatever it is. And then you get into these rather weirdly philosophical discussions about whether it's morally wrong to do something terrible that God wants you to do, which is, I point out, hardly a new debate. So um, <laughs> yeah, but the bottom line is whether or not you can come up with a theory, and I'm sure you can, you're right that the stuff he's spouting is stuff you can find on Fox News any day. 
He's not saying that she's an alien or a demon or something like that. So he he does have a difficult time um, convincing a jury that he, he couldn't understand the nature of what he was doing. You also raised the, this issue that the, the question of whether you are not guilty by reason of insanity is separate from the question of whether you have the capacity to stand trial. That's right. So not guilty by reason of insanity is a defense to your liability for a crime. The question of capacity is whether the government is allowed to proceed with the case against you, whether you're too crazy to try, basically. And the question is whether you reasonably understand the nature of the proceedings you're in uh, and whether you're reasonably able to assist counsel. But here, if, if he's not, then the remedy isn't he goes free. Uh, the remedy is he, he is sent someplace and forcibly medicated and uh, treated until he is capable of standing trial. I guess it's too soon to tell, but I, I, we haven't seen any in indication yet that he would lack the capacity to stand trial, right? Well, we, we haven't yet. I don't believe that his attorneys have floated any trial balloons about that. But the, the type of lack of capacity to stay in trial generally involves more extreme types of mental illness than this. It involves extreme uncommunicativeness, basically someone who's, who's almost like uh, non-communicative at all, or it involves extreme delusions about the nature of the proceedings that makes it impossible for them to work with their lawyers. That's all for this week's free episode of Serious Trouble. Uh, I do encourage you, if you're not a paying subscriber, uh, you can go to SeriousTrouble.show, and there's about 20 minutes more of tape in this show. We talk about some follow-up questions on the Alec Baldwin case. We got some really interesting notes from readers, including a uh, an, an appellate public defender in the state of New Mexico, uh, with some thoughts on the possibility that Alec Baldwin would face a firearm enhancement that actually get a significantly stronger sentence if he were convicted in that case. We have a, a question from Ben Dreyfus, a fellow Substacker and a child of a Hollywood actor, sometime actor himself, who wants to know about the, the rights and responsibilities of actors here. You have the, the actors uh, guilds basically saying, you know, it's the job of the armorer to check whether there are bullets in the gun. So is it is it really a crime if an actor who relied on the armorer and ends up shooting someone? And then we have some discussion about the possibility that there were prior firearms incidents on the set of Rust and whether that creates more potential liability for Alec Baldwin, both as a producer and as an actor, that he should have known that there were already things going wrong with the guns on the set, and therefore he should have been more careful. So we have interesting discussions about that. We talk about uh, false negatives and false positives and uh, whether uh, Ken screwed up some math-adjacent issues uh, when we talked about Brian Walsh. Then we also have some updates on Donald Trump, some litigation he's brought against Bob Woodward, uh, and more action from the Manhattan District Attorney, who apparently is now yet again looking for a possible way that he could indict Donald Trump, uh, which we frankly do not find very impressive. So if you want to listen to that episode, you can go to SeriousTrouble.show for $6 a month or $60 a year. You can become a paying subscriber. You'll get every full episode of the show, more than 40 episodes a year. You'll also be able to participate in our comment threads and see all the features that exist at the SeriousTrouble.show website. Uh, and of course, you'll be able to listen to all that the rest of this week's episode. So I, I strongly encourage you to do that. Uh, and even if you don't, we will be back in your podcast inbox pretty soon. So thank you. Thank you.